Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, as we are so thankful for the very powerful experience of worship throughout the course of this morning, as we enter into this third teaching now, we're asking that once again that this pastor step aside, that we allow for Jesus Christ, risen Savior, and your word to be at the forefront of everything. Speak to our hearts. And no matter what the issues are that anybody, whatever challenge that any individual faces this morning, we want to do now is to go to the tomb, explore the significance of the vacancy sign there, and make absolutely certain we've put our faith and trust in the resurrected one. These moments that you give us to be together, Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. Come here, Father, again to see Jesus. Him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a movie that has been, of course, in theaters throughout the United States, and it's based upon the book by Lee Strobel, The Case for Christ. It's a great book. I've had it probably for a good 17, 18 years, and it's well marked up. There's a tremendous interview that has taken place that led into the showing of this movie, where Lee Strobel says, I was a scoffer once myself. Before spiritual skepticism became trendy. As a Yale School law trained journalist, then at the Chicago Tribune, I didn't have any patience for what I viewed as mythology, superstition, or make believe. My investigative reporting approach was just give me the facts. That was my model. My wife was agnostic. And then one day, through the influence of a friend and a church, she met Jesus. She met Jesus. And the first word to come into my mind was divorce. And as portrayed in the case of Christ, I set out to disprove her beliefs and rescue her from what I viewed as simply the call to Christianity. But then I had that moment. Oops. After nearly two years, the investigative evidence scales tipped. Having encountered the persuasive evidence for Christianity, I concluded it would have required more of my faith to maintain my atheism than to become a believer. Quote, unquote. What we want to do this morning is to, with Mr. Strobel, who has since become a pastor, 
one of the brilliant pastors in this nation, who week by week opens up God's word and shares it with others. What we want to do this morning is to now break down this passage of Scripture, and we're going to be exploring from this passage alone the evidences for resurrection that we're finding here, asking ourselves, and frankly, what difference does it make? What difference does it make in my life spectrum experience of everyday challenges of living? There are two significant forms of evidence that I want to draw out for us this morning. The first is found in verse 1 down to verse 10. We're going to put it like this. The first, as we examine the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I want you to note with me what we'll call the material evidence for the resurrection. The material evidence for the resurrection. Now notice that it begins now on the first day of the week. Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early. While it was still dark, saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now you're going to want to couple this one with what Matthew, Mark, Luke have written. Let's just take Matthew and Mark. Matthew wrote in Matthew 28, verse 1, to add some color to this. Now, after the Sabbath, as it began at dawn toward the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave. Mark writes, and when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices that they might come and anoint him. Typical Jewish customary format. And so Matthew, then, sequencing this, adds, And behold, a severe earthquake had occurred. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away, rolled away the stone and sat upon it. An angel who removes stones. Well, you see, we've got some things to begin thinking about. First of all, what was wrapped around that stone? Answer, there was a cord wrapped around that stone with a seal positioned in front. This cord positioned around the stone at its widest point sealed with clay, the emperor's insignia, not to be tampered with, you see. But the question is going to quickly become, because the grave is empty, but who is the supreme emperor in this story? And what about those gods, you see? Because the presence of the Roman soldiers would guarantee that these disciples would not come and steal away the body. And the seal here guaranteed that the guards would have no hand in moving the stone with a chance of breaking it. This kind of act would be suicidal for them. They understood the legal repercussions. 
But Mary Magdalene appears on the scene here, and she's beginning to grapple with something. She sees that the stone has been taken away from the tomb. The stone is displaced. Now, Jesus did not need the stone to be displaced in order to make his way out of the tomb. No. It was this stone, it's common for a stone to weigh about as much as a ton. Large, circular in shape, set up on edge, positioned in an inclined groove just in front of the tomb's entrance. And after the body is placed in the cave for burial, the stones released from the high end of the groove by removal of the wedge. The laws of gravity take effect, and the stone rolls into place. Who moved the stone? Would timid disciples who have been running from the scene all of a sudden conjure up new courage? And where would they get the physical strength to be able to remove a one-ton stone. And these soldiers, would they be willing to risk this whole suicidal venture for the sake of the removal of the stones so that the body in turn could be removed to perpetuate and within their mindset what would be a lie for the sake of the disciples to be able to claim truth? Who has motive for this anyways? The questions. The questions have got to be answered somehow, some way. In the case for Christ, which has been out in the theater, some professors are interviewed, like D.A. Carson in the book, or William Lane Craig in the book. It's Craig in the interview that caught my attention at this point of verse 1. Because he's being asked at this point about any possible fabrication of this story by subsequent editors. And he smiles and he looks at Lee Strobel and he says, and reminds him of Jewish literature. It's absolutely remarkable that the chief witnesses to the empty tomb are women who are friends of Jesus. Any later legendary account would have portrayed male disciples as discovering the tomb. This is God's added way of giving historicity to this moment, you see, because this would have been edited out in this male-oriented historical culture at that time period. The fact that women are the first witnesses to the tomb brings still added historical evidence and reality regarding the matter of this tomb being empty, taking us beyond any sense of legendary status. He would go on to say, then this, Lee, I strongly feel that scholars who have not known the love and devotion that these women felt for Jesus have no right to pronounce cruel judgments upon the feasibility of what they wanted to do. For people who are grieving, who have lost something they desperately loved followed to want to go to the tomb in a forlorn hope of anointing the body, I just don't think some later critic can treat them like robots and say they shouldn't have gone. This is historical Jewish practice, you know. 
he, he smiles at the idea and says the Jews proposed the ridiculous story that the guards had fallen asleep. Obviously, they were grasping at straws, this argument. But the point is this. They started with the assumption that the tomb was vacant. Why? Check your assumptions. Because they knew it was. The site of Jesus' tomb was known to the Jewish authorities. And even if the woman had made a mistake, the authorities would have only been too happy to point out the tomb and correct the disciples' error when they began to proclaim that Jesus had risen from the dead. I don't know anybody today in philosophical circles who holds this point of view. And so he ends this chapter by quoting Norman Anderson, who lectured at Princeton, a professor from Harvard. The empty tomb, then, forms a veritable rock on which all rationalistic theories of the resurrection dash themselves in vain. I don't know to what degree Mary's processing all that at this point. She's emotionally charged. Something's gone haywire. So in verse 2, and you're, you're tracking with me now, you see, on the screen, you're checking the scriptures. And so uh, she begins to run. Tomorrow's the Boston Marathon. It's all about running. This chapter is all about running. We see a culture today where people are running in all kinds of directions, erratically confusedly, lacking not only a sense of direction, but furthermore, a sense of destination. They need to go to the empty tomb and find meaning there. She runs. She ran, went to Simon Peter, the other disciple. John is just so humble, isn't he? Doesn't name himself at this point, the one whom Jesus loved. And she says to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Now, pause there because that is an assumption. That is what we might call a naturalistic assumption. She has not allowed the supernatural to break into her natural living. And so now she is struggling. Where do I go from here? The one who gave me a sense of purpose and meaning of life. It's not here. They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, she assumes. We, speaking of the other ladies as well, do not know where they have laid him. So God has sovereignly ordained in the history of gender matters to allow for the women to be placed there first for historical reliability, you see. William Lane Craig would argue for this. I can see my professor in class now passionately bring this up. So what's happening here? The race begins. In verse 3, so Peter went out. He's fast out of the block with the other disciple, and they're going toward the tomb. Now, it seems as though there's some kind of competition here. Both of them were running together, 
And then, John, I can almost see the smile that begins to make its way off a corner of his lips. The other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Evidently, John's not too concerned about preserving the honor of Peter at this point. He's saying, I won. Verse 4, both of them were running together, but the other disciple, speaking himself at this point, outran Peter, reached the tomb first. But something is about to unfold in front of your very eyes. When you're trained in classical languages in particular, you realize sometimes the paucity of the English language. Those of you that have ventured in at all into, say, Greek, you realize there's only one English word here, but there are three different Greek words here being used. Each brings a new dimension of this resurrection story, starting with verse 5. John, of course, is recording his experience at this point. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. He saw. Now, on your fourth line down, notice that it said he saw, but we've put a Greek word in there. It's anglicized for us. It's the Greek word blepo for he saw. Bleppo carries with the idea of a casual glance. The kind of thing where maybe this fall Packers are playing and you are leaning forward and you are intensely involved in analyzing what Rodgers is going to do next as he moves to the line of scrimmage. While somebody else has appeared on the scene and they're just eating their popcorn and their chips and they seem indifferent and all they do is casually glance. And you don't understand, why are they not into this. Well, at this point, what we've got here is a casual glance. John is aware something's happening here. He's taking in the scene, so to speak. But he has not yet moved into investigative journalism like Elise Strobel will with an oops moment. Is that where you're at? It's something that people in all the services this morning have got to process and in turn get their co-workers to begin to rethink assumptions of perhaps naturalistic worldview thinking. How do you explain this? At this point, what we've got is simply the glance toward resurrection. And some people offer this kind of spiritual glance on an Easter Sunday morning, but life continues as on Monday morning. If you ever make your way into the Alps, the Italian Alps, you know the story of the Stations of the Cross. The Stations of the Cross stand as an outdoor crucifix. The crosses to the left and to the right of Jesus, the cross of Jesus in the middle. The ones planning insurrection on either side, the one involved in resurrection found in the middle. 
But if you're tourist and you reach that point, what you're going to notice is that there's a little trail that goes beyond the cross. But you're going to have to make your way through some rough thicket. And as you get to the point where there's another shrine, shrine that's symbolized by the empty tomb, you're going to notice that it's been neglected. Brush has grown up around it. It seems as though everybody has gone as far as the cross. But there they stopped. There they stopped. As you race through life, how far do you go? Have you connected Good Friday with Sunday morning and how Easter Sunday is the validation of the work of Christ on the cross and that Good Friday experience. The stations of the cross beg you to be able to go beyond the well-developed path. Some people only go so far, you know, in life. Where are you at? Not to be outdone at this point now with the blepo moment of the Apostle John, Simon Peter now picks up the pace. Long before the Boston Marathon, here's the Jerusalem Marathon. And so in verse 6, Simon Peter came, probably huffing and puffing, following him. He's older, you see, than the Apostle John. We'll give him that. Went into the tomb. He goes further, kind of like the disciples who stayed in the boat while Peter got out and walked on water, you see. But I want you to notice now that once again in the phrasing at the end of verse 6 is your second S-A-W. He saw the linen cloths lying there. What is interesting, if you examine what's in the parenthesis and compare it to the previous saw in the first parenthesis, while the first parenthesis, about fourth line down, he saw was a blepo, the second he saw, now what is it, about the seventh line down, says he saw theoreo. What's going on? What is now happening here is that Peter is going further with this than John initially did. He is allowing his naturalistic assumptions to be challenged by, we've got an empty tomb on our hands, and I didn't do it. Fast runner guy here, he didn't do it. We've been hiding out in that upper room. And... Why would the soldiers do it? That's suicidal. Not only who moved the stone, but why was the stone removed? And then they would have to begin to process how particularly in sequential form through the book of Mark, you will find again and again as Jesus made his way toward Jerusalem, he would talk about that he must be crucified and three days later must be raised from the dead. Watch the mus, M-U-S-T-S, in the book of Mark. 
and start connecting and ask yourself, have I settled? Have I settled thus far for a blepo approach to my pilgrimage in life? Or am I moving forward and I am allowing now for the empty tomb to challenge me in my naturalistic thinking as I watch and observe life and death issues day in, day out, week in, week out, year in, year out? How does all this set up in comparison to uh, an empty tomb? And you begin to theorize. And you start to ask yourself some tough questions. Questions that go beyond. How do we explain the testimony of all of Christ's fathers? Because it's not going to be limited now, is it, to merely Mary? Why didn't Matthew, just simply going back to his April 15th love day of collecting taxes, or Peter, on the other hand, going back to his love of fishing, And how do we explain this empty tomb, you see, and this displaced stone and the gods? And what motive would they have had and the seal? Why would it be broken? Who would take the risk? And how do we explain why over 500 people, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, claimed to have saw him and Paul would have easily have experienced challenges of refutation if it were otherwise? And how do we explain the credibility of the witnesses? And fascinatingly enough, how do we explain the inability of the opposition to refute the claims of Christ's followers? They had vested interests. All they would have to do is to produce the body. Why couldn't they? Why didn't they? Are you willing to ask intelligent questions of life and fortify your worldview on the basis of empty tomb realities? And how do we explain the transformation, the lives of Christ's followers who were so timid prior to the cross and so courageous subsequent to resurrection reality? And where do you get such strength? Has God transformed you? Do you find yourself moving from blepo to theoreto? Don't stop there. Laho Ordas didn't. For six years, he was incarcerated for his faith in a communist country at that time of Hungary. Tall, noble, strong, manly, brilliant. quietly told his story. They placed me in solitary confinement. It was a tiny cell, perhaps six feet by eight feet, for six years, no windows. Soundproofed. They hoped to break down my resistance by isolating me from all sensory perceptions. They thought I was alone. They were wrong. The risen Christ was present.
in the great challenges of your everyday life experience. The risen Christ is present. Evidently, Thomas Jefferson didn't get that. My family at one point had gone to Monticello, and we had years ago spent time walking the grounds of Jefferson's home. I was thinking of Jefferson's Bible, simply a copy of our Bible with all references to the supernatural eliminated. Jefferson, a deist, in making his selections from the Bible, he confined himself solely to simply the moral teachings of Jesus. But how moral is it when Jesus claimed that he would rise from the dead? The closing words of Jefferson's Bible are these. There laid they Jesus and rolled a great stone to the mount of the sepulchre and departed, quote, unquote. Meanwhile, we are moving here linguistically from blepo through theoreto. But we're not stopping there. John's thinking in trio form here. And so you pick it up now in verse 7 and 8. Face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloth, but folded up in a place by itself. And according to Jewish custom and tradition, when it came to burial, where Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus would have laid heavy amounts of spices upon that body for Jewish purification matters. What is fascinating here in the original and what is understood historically is that the linen placed around the face of the Savior is still in the concave form. It's as if as if what Dr. John Stott of All Souls Church in London put it, brilliant man, the body had dematerialized which is consistent then with the way in which Jesus Christ would have been able to enter into that upper room, doors locked. There he appears. And Thomas, likewise, has got to examine, process, evaluate the evidence. There's a sovereign God of life and death. He establishes the claims of Jesus Christ as valid. He establishes that all who believe in Christ are justified from their sin, declared righteous. It's proof that death is not the end of life and that we will someday stand before Yahweh God. So now, we take all the questions posed previously and we allow for ourselves to move from blepo, theoreto, onward. And then in verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, he doesn't want us to forget that, you know. I love his competitive spirit. He also went in. But here's your third saw. But it's not Bleppo, is it? It's not the Areto, is it? Nope. It's Arao. You feel sometimes the challenge of the English language? Don't you wish you could capture this with different words? It means to see with understanding. It's as if we've got a theological analyst on our hands here. He's explaining the play-by-play action 
of what's occurring here. Orao involves seeing with understanding. He saw and believed. He now connects dots. Jesus predicted resurrection. He said he must die three days later be raised. Old Testament prophesied of it. Tomb is empty. People are going to begin to hear about this. Lives are going to be revolutionized, challenged. The opponents are going to have to produce a body, and they're going to be red-faced when they realize that they cannot. What do we do with the transformative message hitting the streets of Jerusalem? Verse 9 informs us at this point. Even they, as yet, did not understand the Scripture the historical validity of all this, that he must, and there is the must, not should. This is powerful. It's, in essence, taking the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ and viewing them as two hinges to one door that you must go through to be able to connect temporal to eternal, the natural to the supernatural. And in the challenges of everyday life, death matters. We've got to do this. We've got to reach that point, you see, of Barato, to see and understand. Then the disciples, they went back to their homes. Now they're processing. Hopefully we are processing. Hopefully we're getting others to process. I'll put some giddy up into all this. So as we examine the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you note the material evidence that's here for the resurrection, 1 through 10? Then note the other form of evidence here. There's more in the Bible, but second of all, simply note with me the transformational evidence for the resurrection that's here, 11 through 18. Watch how people's emotional state is so often governed by what I'll call a naturalistic worldview. That sense of this is all there is. They've never done empty tomb living as it relates to their human emotional state. But Mary's going to have to deal with it. She's emotional. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting there with the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the feet. Now, Here's what fascinates me again. It's original language matters here, but stay with me. Verse 13, John, the Apostle John, loves this title for women. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Cain of Galilee, that wedding, first time, war and wine. Jesus' mother approaches him. How does he refer to her? woman on that cross Jesus dying for our sins the apostle records the fact that Jesus Christ last will he's establishing making certain that his mother's properly cared for turns to her and says woman did you notice how he stayed mentally engaged in the midst of his supreme suffering Do you stay mentally engaged in the face of whatever supreme challenges you encounter personally? Do you see what John is doing here? All this has been recorded in his gospel account. He is connecting dots. Woman, 
Why are you weeping? There is a naturalistic weeping and there's a supernaturalistic weeping. What is driving her emotional state? She said to them, here's the assumption now. Look for assumptions behind emotions when you are ministering to others. They've taken away my Lord. You feel that? That's what she's thinking. And I do not know where they have laid him. That's what's driving her emotional state. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Tracking with me? Jesus said to her, Woman, are you connecting dots? Now he's going to challenge what I would call naturalistic emotion with what I'll call supernaturalistic reality. But he does it in the form of questions. And if you want to minister to people who are hurting, use good questions. He uses a why and he uses a whom. Why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? In other words, he's going to have to pose the question so she's prepared for the answer. Too many times we're delivering answers when they haven't even reached the point of addressing the questions. Allow people to process. Because we've got another assumption on our hands here with the word supposing. Supposing him to be the gardener. She said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Something has got to be addressed here. The website of the Federalist, it's written, it's done by what I'll call cutting-edge writers of a generation younger than mine. And Jane Metzger tells us, Last year, my father-in-law retired from his 20-year teaching job at the local university. And that spring, Papa and Nanny broke the news that they had planned to move back home for their retirement years to the Tennessee mountains where they had raised their three children, and that was incredibly upsetting to the grandchildren. Jane tells us that because of this, before the house went on the market, We held our Easter gathering a little early. She wants them to process this in a world in which babies are murdered by sarin gas bombs that rip through Palm Sunday services. It's always been Papa and Nanny themselves who made this house special, she tells them. Remember, you're not losing them. She writes, my kids aren't just grieving for a house. They're grieving the brevity of life. Isn't that wise? This is preparation, an acknowledgement of this later season of living where the small goodbyes of today foreshadow the future ones of tomorrow, reminding us that nothing in this world 
last forever. But who does? The rest of the story. My 13-year-old in particular hates change, wrought by the inevitable march of time. On our last day in my in-law's house, she walked around the property taking photos of every nook and cranny, desperate not to lose anything from her memory. And then C.S. Lewis breaks in. Metzger writes, Most people, if they had really learned to look into their own hearts, C.S. Lewis observed in Mere Christianity, would know that they do want or want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. And goes on to conclude, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. But too many people are trying to cling with a naturalistic emotional state to this one. This is as if we're still treating Jesus like he's a gardener. Well, he called her woman. It's time to call her Mary. So in verse 16, Jesus said to him, Mary, and she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. Do you feel that? Don't use a naturalistic approach to a supernaturalistic savior. There's more here. I've not yet ascended to the Father. Go to my brothers, say to them, I am ascending to my Father, your Father, to my God, your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and he has said these things to her. And the testimony hits the streets running. 1930. Bukharin journeyed from Moscow to Kiev. You know the story. Addressing a huge assembly subject communistic atheism, solid hour, aiming his artillery at Christianity, and then ends, are there any questions? And then this solitary man stands, asks permission to speak, mounts the platform, moves closer to the communist audience, breathless in silence as the man surveyed them, first from to the right, then to the left. And at last he shouted the ancient orthodox greeting, Christ is risen. And then the vast assembly arose as one man, the writer tells us. And the response came crashing like the sound of an avalanche. He is risen indeed. And now what we've got is validation of the purpose of crucifixion. Jesus died for your sins and mine. The empty tomb validates that on the third day, having been raised from the dead, God the Father is saying, well done to the one who had said it is finished. And now you and I have got to ask ourselves, and what do I do with that? Am I willing to move then? Move from Blepo through Theoreto until I get to Orao, 
and have faith with understanding and make a difference in this world for Jesus. Let's pray. And Father, I want to pray first and foremost for that one who came here today. They've been glancing at Easter Sunday, but it doesn't make a difference in their minds regarding Monday. Confront them now with the realities and the evidences that are here in these verses. Bring them to the point when they realize I'm dealing with more than a gardener on my hands. Bring them to Jesus. So, Father, I pray if there is one in any of these services today that are collecting their thoughts and checking their assumptions and now moving from theoretical onward to a realm, that they will put faith and trust now exclusively in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Let the eternal confront the temporal and embrace the reality of Sunday standing before the sovereign God, but doing so based upon the shed blood of Jesus Christ having put faith and trust in him. So, Father, minister to each heart here. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.